welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 6th, Eerie Silence, Early Horror Roots. Alright, so we got a interesting one today. I don't know if any of you are interested at all in watching silent films, but that's what's on the palette today, so, you know, I won't think anything less of you if you don't listen to this. Uh, I just kind of wanted to go through today with about four movies that I consider and that a lot of people actually consider to be sort of foundational to modern, like, horror movies. You know, obviously there were horror stories before this, but these were the ones that really helped it, uh, helped to bring it into, you know, semi-respectable mainstream movies. So, first up on the list today we have Vampire. Um, it's directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, who I was actually introduced to, uh, for a couple of, uh, movies on the Criterion channel that he has. Uh, one is Day of Wrath, and the other it, er, another is Ordet, another was, uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. Now, as with a lot of, like, really great movies, this one was kind of very poorly received at the time it came out. There's actually one story that a riot broke out in Vienna when uh, patrons demanded a refund from the theater and they didn't give it to them. But, and it was long for a long time considered to be a sort of low point in the director's career. Uh... But over the years, it has been substantially reassessed and reevaluated to the point where I think it's got like a 90 on Rotten Tomatoes right now. And this isn't technically a silent film. It's partially a sound film, but the thing is there's very little dialogue because they had to record this movie for like three different languages. Uh, So there's very little dialogue in the movie, most of it's told through, you know, intertitles, which is basically if you've ever seen, like, a silent film or even a parody of a silent film, it's that scene where it's those points where the scene kind of drops out, you just get, like, a card with writing on it on screen, and then it goes back to the scene. That was basically how they conveyed uh, dialogue when they couldn't do it through body language back then. Um... More so than a lot of other silent films, the soundtrack, it's very good, but it's also a lot more muted than it normally would be. Um, and there's actually this really inventive uh, method that they used for filming it. They held a sheet of gauze about three feet out from the camera to give it a sort of like fuzzy effect and between the music the sparse dialogue um some of the effects that were used it has a sort of like what was later called dream logic uh to it this sort of free association that goes along with most of the plot in this movie and it's not to say that it's hard to follow it's actually Kind of easy, especially considering the movie's not even, like, 80 minutes long. But the atmosphere itself is kind of disorienting, and I think that might have been part of the reason why it was very poorly received when it came out, because 
film was still fairly new. And this just went against like so many people's ideas of how a movie should be made. But, you know, as with a lot of movies, it eventually got reevaluated over the years and it's a lot better appreciated now. So, all that out of the way, I'm getting to the actual like plot of the movie so far. Uh, it's based on a short story from Sheridan Le Fanu, who was an Irish uh, horror author. And it's a story from his collection called In a Glass Darkly. And essentially the story here is that there's a student named Alan Gray. He has an interest in the occult. He ends up coming to a small town under the curse of a vampire. And he decides to investigate from there on out himself. You know, pretty like standard mystery slash gothic horror setup. But, you know, the whole thing is, at least for me anyway, the sort of mystery in it, the fact that everything's kind of slightly loopy, for lack of a better way to put it, means that you kind of get invested pretty easily, even though there's not a lot of dialogue going on. We don't have a lot of information about Alan at the start of it. We don't get much throughout the movie. And I think it also kind of helped that everyone comes off just the tiny bit silted because the only there were only two actual professional actors in the whole movie. And for a movie made in the 30s, it's got some pretty inventive effects. And especially with the way they killed off one character in it. He, went, he goes to go hide in like a mill. And a miller, not realizing that he's hiding there, you know, uh, starts the machinery. And he doesn't get crushed out or anything, but he actually gets, like, suffocated by all the flour that's getting dropped down into it. So, you know, it's it's far from being, like, a standard, you know, 30s horror film. I, you know, I always, I love the Universal horror movies, but this one just has something I can't really explain that kind of makes me like it a bit more than, say, Frankenstein or Dracula. But I am putting this up first because of the four here, it is probably my least favorite. But, you know, don't take that as a sign against the movie. It's still really good. If I didn't like it at all, I wouldn't be talking about it here. But anyway, moving on to Hakusan. So moving on to Hakusan, or... Uh, witchcraft throughout the ages, as it was called in the 60s when it was re-released in the U.S. It's not necessarily what a lot of people would consider a horror film, but, you know, we'll get to that. It's more, it's directed by Benjamin Christensen uh, from Denmark. It's essentially more of an essay film with horror elements for dramatic purposes. It's divided into several parts where the director essentially uh, posits the idea. And I am a history major, so I should tell you that this is basically, this is actually kind of commonly accepted in a lot of places as an idea. That most of the fear from, the most of the fear in old days was 
that regarding witches and evil, sort of like evil magic and sorcery, was mostly pre-modern societies trying to make sense of, you know, mental illness, stuff that was clearly affecting them, but they couldn't see an obvious cause of. And according to the director, he got the idea because sort of on a whim, he was in a bookstore and he picked up a copy of the Malleus Maleficarum, which was basically an old treatise written by an inquisitor named Hyrick Kramer. And it was basically how to hunt and prosecute witches without endangering oneself. Now, it's... The reason it's usually considered a horror film is because of a lot of the imagery. They use stop motion, they use miniatures, they use a lot of stuff that came to be later used in actual horror movies for, you know, creature effects. And the reason they did this was just to, you know, make it a bit more visually interesting. Uh, there's also dramatizations of, you know, uh, witch trials, people being accused of ones, people actually being witches. And there's actually a couple scenes where the director actually has a cameo as the devil. Uh, heavily costumed, of course. And, you know, aside from the historical value, it was also, like, the root of a lot of effects that came to be, you know, later used in horror films. Obviously, for anyone that's seen Evil Dead, you know how well stop-motion can be used. Um, any sort of, like, monster movie... You know, chances are they use some kind of, like, forced perspective to make the, you know, the monster look bigger, whether it was a puppet or whether or not it was, like, a guy in a suit. And here it was being used for, you know, what Christensen likely saw as a good uh, essay film. Part of it was to uh, promote the idea the ideals of, you know, science, of the modern world, you know, democracy in a way, because he also did argue that part of this was just, you know, people in power trying to root out the undesirables as they saw it. So it, it's a very, you can interpret it as a very political film given the content of it, but it's mostly important in film history because of its contribution to later horror especially given how, shall we say, graphic it was at the time. In addition to being the most expensive silent film ever made in Scandinavia, it was also, it was well-received in the Scandinavian world, but, you know, when it came to Germany and France and even to the U.S., it was both heavily censored and critically panned for you know, the anti-clericalism of it all. Um, you know, Christensen, as far as I could tell, was at least a somewhat spiritual man, but, you know, a lot of people took this as kind of an attack on religion as a whole. So it wasn't appreciated on that front. And on top of that, for the time, the depictions of sex and nudity and torture were all fairly explicit, at least by the standards of, you know, the 20s and 30s. But, you know, if you can... I know a lot of people these days probably don't care for silent film just because of the you know technical limitations of it. But 
it's definitely worth a watch, especially if you're interested in both horror and history, as I'd say. Um, it's on HBO Max as of as of the time I'm recording this, so you should be able to watch it with a decently well-made uh, master of it, uh, fairly res- high resolution. I mean, granted, the thing you got to remember with a lot of these movies is that some of them were almost completely lost because the film prints were either damaged or degraded in some way. But yeah, like I said, as of watching this, as of recording this, I mean, it's on HBO Max, so you should be able to watch it if you have a subscription to that. So next up, we've got F.W. Murnau's favorite, famous horror film, which if you're like me, you might have heard of from an episode of Spongebob. Yep, we've got Nosferatu. Now, I could go over the overall plot, but frankly, if you've seen Dracula, you know what the plot is. But there's a fair amount of differences from the novel because this was sort of an unauthorized adaptation of Dracula. So, you know, obviously the most obvious one, uh, it's not Count Dracula in this one, it's Count Orlok instead of looking fairly normal and just kind of old. He's... You know, he's got pointed ears, he's got a long nose, he's got really long wizened fingers. So he looks kind of, you know, outwardly frightening. Um, Orlok actually kills his victims, as opposed to Dracula, where they're kind of weakened for a little bit before they actually die. And to all the outside observers, they just look like they're kind of sick. Uh... Speaking of sickness, uh, in Visborg in 1839, which is the place that this movie takes place, not 1890s London like Dracula does, it does cause an outbreak of disease. A fair amount of the remaining characters have their names changed. Uh, A lot of the secondary characters are omitted. It's a different ending. Um, which I'm not going to get into because I don't want to spoil it too much. <sighs> yeah, it's... I love Nosferatu, but there's not really much to talk about because aside from the differences I mentioned, it is basically just, you know, a German version of Dracula again. Although I should mention that even with all these differences, Stoker's estate basically... Like they nearly, it like they nearly destroyed this movie. They found Murnau and his crew guilty of copyright infringement, and they ordered that the prints of the movie be burned, which means that it was considered lost for a long time until fairly intact copies could be found. Which is, which is impressive because as an anime fan, I thought the only people that had that ability were Japanese copyright lawyers. But we're not going to get into that here. Um, but yeah, it's also, it is worth talking about in its own right, because it's definitely a lot more surreal than the universal Dracula. Uh, it was made by one of the production designers was Alvin Grau, who was a sort of artist known for his interest in the occult and sort of expressionist imagery. 
it, it was either expressionist or surrealism. I think his work can kind of be classified as both. I'm just having a remember difficulty remembering off the top of my head. But he had a sort of short-lived production company called Prana Film. Um, so for those that don't know, Prana is a concept in Hinduism, I believe, or just Indian philosophy in general. And... It essentially means life force or vital principle. It literally translates to breath in Sanskrit. And essentially... Um, I'm sorry if I'm rambling here, but essentially the studio's intent was to produce occult and supernatural-themed films, but it declared bankruptcy shortly after the film's release... So Nosferatu was its only its only production. You know, as I mentioned, the as I mentioned, Soker's estate sued uh pretty heavily because they didn't attain the uh film rights for film rights for Dracula, so they had to do all those changes. And the fact that its release got blocked so heavily was You know, it, it probably wasn't helpful to the film company's longevity. Uh, there's an apocryphal tale from Alban Grau about why he was interested in shooting a vampire film. And supposedly, during his time in World War I, uh, during the winter of, 16, of 1916, that a Serbian farmer claimed that his father was a vampire. Some other, like, some other connections to go into were uh, Grau brought on an artist named, a writer named Henrik Galen to write the screenplay, and he was famous for, it's for dark romanticism, if you want to call it that. It sort of overlaps with gothic horror, but it's not necessarily the same thing. He already worked on a couple of other silent films, The Student of Prague, uh, a movie called The Golem. And, yeah, that's part of the reason why the movie itself is kind of... It, it's not like, you know, our last film today, my favorite. It's not quite that level of surreal, but it definitely feels a bit more... Um, there's a more ephemeral quality to it where everything just seems a little bit uh, nebulous and suggestive instead of explicitly stated. So that's part of the reason why you have all these people that had interest in making it a little more eerie. And one way to do eeriness is to not show, is to not show things completely and to just let the audience's brains fill in the gaps. But, yeah, this one is another that's on Shudder, as far as I know. So, if you want to see one of the original vampire movies, go give this one a watch.
And finally on the list, we've got my favorite of these four, the cabinet of Dr. Cagliari. Now, I heard of this, well, I knew of this movie for a while, and I'd watched it a long time ago as well, but I was happy to hear it referenced in a really good movie recently called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Yes, the most recent one with Nick Cage coming out. Uh, Which, by the way, if you haven't seen that one, go back and listen to one of my dispatches. I forget which one, but... It's it's in the 10 out of 10s, and I don't give those lightly. We just had a really good year for movies in 2022. And he lists this in the movie as one of his favorites, along with, you know, uh, Face Off and one other. I forget which one it was, but... Essentially, the plot here is that there's a sleepwalker named Cesare, played by Conrad Veidt, uh... You might know him best as either the Major from Casablanca or as, you know, the guy who basically inspired the Joker's look. But he's being manipulated by a mad scientist into committing crimes, usually, you know, murdering people that the doctor doesn't like. Um, yeah, that is the aforementioned Dr. Cagliari. And it's worth... Noting a few things about this, to create the sort of, like, atmosphere of, like, weirdness, there's very expressionistic set design. And when I say that, what I mean is nothing looks natural. When you see the town in the background at a few points, it almost looks like something out of, like, a really dark version of a Dr. Seuss book. Everything's just really angular. Everything's got weird curvature to it. Uh, nothing looks like how you design for actual humans to live in it. When you see the asylum or some of the roadside or some of the buildings, everything is just, the proportions are all skewed. And if you go, like, watch the movie, you'll see what I mean pretty quickly. Um, there's this weird sort of vignette style a lot of the times. And I don't mean, like, divisions in the story. I mean, when someone's talking, there's usually, like, a sort of hazy darkness around the edge of the screen to kind of to kind of give the sense of like being inside one's own head too much I feel like that's the best way to explain it because you know the line between being sane and insane and whether or not someone can make the call on that is kind of a big theme in the movie um, there's a twist ending which I'm not going to spoil but it has been used by a lot of later filmmakers, so you might be able to see the source of inspiration there when you do watch it. Again, this one's on Shutter, so if you have a subscription, go watch it. And I think one of the ways that you can... Actually, before we get on to like, themes and all that, I do want to bring up one little side note. This one really helped, this movie helped popularize the use of what are called Dutch angles, which is just where the camera is sort of like uh, tilted on tilted on its side for a shot. That's why it's called a Dutch angle. That's just because, you know, English-speaking world, we confused Deutsche, which is the, you know, German word for German with Dutch, so we call them Dutch angles, and... German Expressionist film used a lot of this. 
part of it was just to help convey a sense of things being sort of unbalanced out of out of control. And when used properly, it does actually, it, I can attest that it does actually make things look a little freakier when they're used appropriately. As for like the themes of the movie, one of the things that a lot of people have dug into when analyzing it is just a really big distrust and dislike of authority figures. And is especially because uh, Janowitz and Meyer, who are the two writers, had really negative experiences, as you might imagine, coming out of World War One. One of them basically got drafted and was forced to serve as an officer rank, which he, you know, even though it was a relatively privileged position in the military, it was still, he was still basically a pacifist forced into this role, so he didn't like it. Meyer was subjected to severe amounts of testing from psychiatrists because he basically uh, faked madness to get out of the draft. So, you know, whether or not it was the intention to write a film as a sort of, you know, essay against authority figures, whether or not that was the intention, because that didn't come up until a lot later, I can... I can say that you can argue that it would basically be plainly obvious in the film itself, the way everything is. And a lot of the ways people have interpreted this is that Cagliari, the doctor, he's essentially supposed to represent the wartime government in Germany. And Cesare is supposed to represent, you know, the common man, like... Every soldier he's been conditioned to kill by this authority figure who's probably even more insane than he is. And also just the kind of indictment of the rest of society because, you know, when things go wrong, they blame Cesare or the soldier and they don't rebel against the authority figures. So it's possible that that was also sort of like a screw you to the rest of German society because, you know, soldiers are, in a lot of cases, are generally only celebrated when they actually win the war, regardless of what country we're talking about. But whether or not that was the intention going in is up for debate because uh, one of the writers didn't start saying this until a lot later. And, you know, when you go with a theme like this, I should also mention that it's kind of eerily predictive given what happened just, like, 20 years later in Germany. But, you know, if you have the patience for a silent film, go watch this. I know I sound like a broken record with these, but, you know, it's important to know what the roots are if you're interested in horror movies. And this isn't just a horror movie. None other than Roger Ebert has called it the first true horror film. And for horror films, noir films, art house films, in a lot of ways this one really opened a lot of doors. So if you're like me and like movies, especially the weird shit, go give this one a watch. It's really, really well done for something that was so old. And more impressively, were it made today, its budget would only be about 200 grand. So, you know, there's something to be said for a fairly low-budget movie as well. 
Anyway, that's enough for today. I am going to sign off. I'll be back tomorrow. And we will be turning into something a little more mainstream. We're going to be visiting in Camp Blood itself. And we're going to be going through the entirety of the Friday the 13th franchise. Hope you'll join me then. Until then, signing off for the night. So have yourself a good time. Stay safe. Bye.